This is The Last Coffee House, and today we are talking about The Science of Evil. It's a Sam Harris reading list. We're on our way. But this one, this one is The Science of Evil. It's by Simon Baron Cohen, published 2012. It examines the social, cognitive, neurological, and biological roots of psychopathy, cruelty, and evil. The primary thesis is evil is not a useful concept for describing the heights of cruelty. It's really an evasion and doesn't explain anything. So what Cohen's trying to do, or Baron Cohen's trying to do here is give a scientific explanation for it. <laughs> and I know the the title of it was actually changed in the UK, I think. It was changed to The Science of Evil for publication in the United States. It was, I think it was called Zero Negative Empathy or something like that in the UK. Something more neutral, less inflammatory. But like I said, the primary thesis is that the old religious stance or posture when it comes to explaining evil, that evil just is evil and that's it, is not sufficient and that he's trying to tackle this. And this is in 2012. So the contents. He opens up with extreme cruelty and talks about Nazi experiments where they switched hands of victims who were being experimented on just to see if they could do it. And I remember, like, I'm not having the same response that I had right right now that I had when I originally read this. This was something, it was like flickering in the periphery of my memory that they did things like this. But this is something that somebody has to live with for the rest of their lives. They're alive. They weren't just murdered by the Nazis, but they have to live with this for the rest of their lives, their hands switch just to see if they could do it. It's such a ridiculous, disgusting pocket of human history, and it's- I don't even say that as a, oh, I just have to point out cruelty to show that I have virtue or something like that. I say that as a, how do we get to that point? What are these people? How, what are they thinking? What is their day-to-day? -day? How do they get pushed to this? How do they get funneled into these kinds of inclinations that they are willing to do these kinds of experiments on people? What's the mixture? And we'll get into this, the nature nurture thing, but what is the mixture that got them to this point? Anyway, in the book he talks about uh, how it's turning people into objects, everybody's heard that kind of framing of the idea. People are objectified, you'll treat them in a certain way, then if they're not, he talks about empathy erosion, and he describes how it's not just the Nazis, he looks for some other cruelties, which I won't go into detail, because I don't want to use a lot of those words, but he goes into other cruelties of people who are not just the Nazis, you know what happened, and obviously if we had a more complete historical record, we would probably see much more pronounced cruelty in history than we realize. It's one thing to be able to document it because we had those tools at the time of the Nazis, but if we had those throughout all of history, I'm sure we would see a lot of those horrible things more readily. Oh, he defines empathy, thankfully, but it's still... I'm gonna editorialize a little bit as I go through here, because I can do this however I want to. But the empathy, the definition, it has to encompass millions of interactions related to human psychology, neurology, biology, sociology, etc. So it's going to be an incredibly broad term to try to grab all sorts of things and put them into one and no matter what you do, unless you're writing an entire book just trying to define the damn thing, then you're probably going to be overbroad, but at least he tries here. He describes how you can either have a single spotlight on your own interests or a double spotlight on your interests and other interests. It's pretty reductive, but okay. Uh, he says that it's about being able to identify an emotional response and respond with the appropriate emotion. So you identify how, what somebody's going through or how they're feeling or, or whatever, and you're able to respond with the appropriate emotion. So there are two parts to it, to what empathy is for Simon Baron Cohen. And then he goes into kind of the more neurological explanation of what empathy is and what it looks like. He references 10 brain regions. I don't remember all 10. <laughs> 
but I know some of them. And he goes kind of in detail about when they respond, when they fire up on an MR, fMRI, and when they don't and how they relate to empathy, but there's the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, there's the occipital frontal cortex, what's the interofrontal cortex or something like that, I don't know. But mostly frontal cortex stuff going on here. <laughs> Which, as far as I understand, evolutionary biology is the most recent, uh, the prefrontal cortex is the most recent evolutionary development. And I actually get into some animal talk later, but it goes into details about how men are able to shut off this empathy circuit, as he'll go on to talk about it, the empathy circuit that relates to the ten brain regions. Men are more, can more easily shut it off for people they don't like, or for people who have engaged in unacceptable behavior or something like that. And it might be related to the men's ability to be able to compete or interest in competition biologically so that's something then that, that makes it or that requires them to be able to shut off their empathy circuit and he I think he developed this this EQ score so empathy quotient score which has a whole bunch of questions that tries to figure out where you are on the empathy scale and then uses it to kind of identify some different levels of empathy or empathy empathy issues uh, he talks about borderlines who see people in black and white they have trouble seeing people in, in shades of gray so people are either absolutely amazing or absolutely horrible and he uses one woman as kind of a the definition or an example of this kind of borderline zero empathy where she would yell at her children and call them horrible names said that they're the worst thing ever and wish she never had them things like that you know and that they ruin everything and then leave just abandon the children for like a week just go have fun with her friends or whatever and she struggled with relationships she would threaten suicide when somebody said they would leave her you know at some times she would demand that she be coddled and touched physically at other times she would call she would scream and yell at him not to touch her at all and these are very partners it's not like one guy had to <laughs> just stuck with her through all this and suffered all of it she had very early sexual relationships where she was trying to be validated by older men i think she was like 14 when she started i know very young when she was like in 18 or 20 or something like that she dated a 40 year old and or at least had an experience a bad experience with a 40 year old but there are the extremes of affection and extremes of the hate and rejection so it's the back and forth and i think everybody's familiar at least with borderlines but in this one there were a whole bunch of other details. I mean, it goes very into detail about how this kind of a person functions, which to some degree is interesting, but it also, this is a pretty short book and it takes up a lot of space in the book, just going into detail about this kind of a person. I think most people have encountered that to some degree, people who go through these patterns and one of the things that strikes me that's kind of a, a background question to this whole idea, this whole book of trying to quantify evil is that how do you work with people like these? How do you get them to function? How do you get them to have relationships? You know, do you medicate them? Do you, are there actually sufficient environmental factors that can get them to change this kind of a behavior? And is it in the interests of society or people around them or people at large, just in general, to actually try to implement those environmental factors that could possibly do this? My own understanding and based on the things that I've read is that it's going to be more genetic than it is environmental. And obviously, and we're going to, it's really annoys me because there's uh, this nature-nurture thing. The whole massive concept of that tension still hinges on the idea of genetics are going to create a ball of 
ranges of responses to stimuli. So the stimuli might come from the outside, but it's genetically determined how you're going to respond to that stimuli. What ranges of responses you're going to have to whatever stimuli you happen to encounter. So I, I don't really like this distinction. I know it's it's got a, it's catchy and it's a thing that most professionals kind of like bringing up and saying, oh look, we have to figure out the balance here. But I really think it's the wrong direction to be taking it. I think we need to be looking at, okay, well, we're a box of genetics. I said a ball earlier, now we're a box of genetics. And we're going to have certain inclinations, disinclinations based on complex webs of stimuli. And those are going to be governed by those genetics. And those are what, that's what's going to be important for determining how a person's going to behave in any context or under any environmental stimulus. So I don't really like this distinction. I really think it should be, it needs to be defined better before it even needs to be studied more effectively. You know, it's anyway, so that's, that's borderlines, zero empathy, issues with relationships, black and white, bad stuff. So he brings up psychopaths later and how they lack fear when it comes to negative consequences. So they're less interested in avoiding punishment because of that. So they're the kind of people that consequences aren't going to work on. He brings up Paul, who was a not real name. <laughs> So I was just like, I have a neighbor named Paul. It's not his real name, but he's, uh, he murdered somebody. He said that, and the way they described this definitely stood out to me, uh, this example of this kind of a, a psychopath, but he said that somebody stared at him in a bar. Somebody was just staring at him in a bar, and he walked up to the person and said, stop staring at me. And the guy said, I wasn't staring at you, I was just looking over the bar. He said, you were staring at me. He took a bottle, broke it, and stabbed the guy and killed him. Any given person under those circumstances, you know, even if if they did that certain thing, they would say afterwards, oh my gosh, I, I don't know what came over me, that was crazy. You know, the guy just looked at me, that's that's no reason to stab somebody. I thought he was going to be aggressive, you know, something like that. But this guy, he was adamant that it was self-defense, uh, and when pressed on it, he said, because uh, Simon Baron Cohen actually went and interviewed, as far as I understand it, interviewed the guy, because he had to do a psychological evaluation. The guy was adamant it was self-defense, and he said that he couldn't have done anything else, that he had to show the, the guy that he wasn't a dorm and this is a fascinating calculus to try to determine. There are a lot of things about, like the person I described earlier who would be horrified by having done this thing or wouldn't do the thing at all. There is a complex calculus that goes into that, but we don't think about it because it's natural. It's just something that happens instantly that I thought somebody was staring at me in a bar doesn't lead to I need to kill that person because I need to show that I'm not a doormat. But I think when they went into the details about it, Paul talked about it, how people always walked over him and historically and it was all this other stuff that was going on. But there's a really complicated calculus that goes into this kind of a behavior. So for Simon Baron Cohen, it has to do with this lack of empathy. It's a certain type of lack of empathy. And I think he described these as there's like zero negative borderline, zero negative psychopathy, zero negative narcissist or something like that. There were like different categories of zero negative empathy. And so he's trying to explain it as a function of that without of not having empathy. I mean, I think, again, it's way too reductive <laughs> to try to make that determination and obviously talking to a person about why they did whatever they did is not the best way to find out why they did whatever they did. It's not likely going to lead to real answers. So he talks about parental support and how that has some kind of an impact on empathy early on. There needs to be a, an attachment between parents and children. There needs to be created this internal pot of gold that people are able to use throughout the rest of life that they can call upon to be able to be you know comfortable and, and function in relationships and all that. And he says that 
that there are different impacts of having a consequence approach to dealing with children versus having an authoritarian approach to dealing with children. So if you explain to a child that if you do this, there are going to be these consequences, that's why you shouldn't do that. That's better than it's going to have different consequences related to empathy than if you say, I'm the authority, do what I say, that's all there is to it. And I, again, you still, you're going to have these chicken egg issues where it's like, okay, did the children turn out poorly later because they had these kinds of inputs going forward? Or is it because they had the genetics that would lead parents to treat children this way that they're just acting out the genetics that they had anyway? So you have to address that issue. You have to deal with that. I mean, every study I've seen when it comes to the impact of parental authority or parents or the way the parents behave relative to children on children is very minimal. The impact that they have is very minimal. I mean, like it's been pretty consistent over the last like decade that I've seen these kinds of studies that have said that it's very minimal the impact that parents actually have on children. Now that's within a range. Obviously, if uh, parents are waterboarding their children every night or something like that, then it's going to have a pretty significant impact. You know, that's the extreme environment that's going to have an impact on the way that children behave, even if you control. I mean, it would take a pretty extreme parent uh, that's probably going to be impacted by genetics to waterboard the children every night. But if you control for that, then it's probably still going to have. Or if it was just an experiment, you put a kid in a different home and then just tell the parent, the new parent, okay, you have to waterboard this kid. You know what I'm saying. It's just, it's really complicated and you have to control for the genetics or the natural in inclination the kid's going to have for that anyway, rather than just saying it, it must be causal. Uh, so I'm not sure about that. And I didn't read the study directly, so maybe they do what they can to control for that. But still, that's something that's, it's not discussed here and it's very important. <laughs> it's very important to understand that distinction and be able to competently deal with that series of potential causes and control for those. So anyway, we've got, oh, males have a smaller OFC, occipital frontal cortex. They're more likely to be antisocial. Um, I'm not sure. I have a note here about the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. I'm not sure why I have that, but that's probably just another one. One of the 10. But so men and women have different inclinations, disinclinations when it comes to exhibiting or experiencing the empathy. And I think they actually, yeah, he said earlier, or he said at some point that women actually score higher in general on the empathy quotient than men do. So there might be a natural propensity for empathy. And, and that's just something you have to deal with. You know, if men are just not as <laughs> empathetic, they might not be as good at certain kinds of things. And that's just the reality. So anyway, smaller OFC. He goes into autism and Asperger's. So these are, I don't want to call them conditions. Uh, these are just modes of thinking, I guess, that have to do with extreme systematizing and low empathy. So they, a person with Asperger's will tend to, quote, speak the truth, end quote, so they won't observe all the sociological niceties that we tend to about somebody's, how they look or somebody's weight or whether something was really bad that some person did that was stupid or something like that. You know, they, they won't observe all those niceties that people tend to naturally. They tend to hate small talk. I feel you there. They like to do one thing at a time. So they have a lot of difficulty doing any more than one thing at a time. And there are different levels. So level five is somebody who would go into like math and engineering, but they can generally talk to people. You know, they're not great at it, but they can generally engage socially. And level six would be somebody who heavily systematizes and has a, a hell of a time trying to engage with anybody. And they find any kind of change toxic. It's really detrimental to them. The one guy that was, uh, I don't remember the name he used, but that he described was somebody who lived with his parents who struggled in any kind of interpersonal relationships. He eventually became a bell ringer and he'd listen to the bells and he could pick out all these patterns out of the bells. And one thing 
thing that I was thinking about is that it's interesting because when it comes to systematizing or finding patterns, it's like they'll look in something like a, just a pattern on a wall or or mathematics or something like that and say, okay, we'll look at that. But human emotions don't have as clean of patterns as far as they can tell. Obviously, there are patterns, extremely complex patterns related to humans, and maybe those are just too large for them to pick up. But you'd think that they, if you have somebody with Asperger's, they'd start picking out within human interactions, they'd pick out these patterns that would suggest that, okay, this person reacts in this way or uses this language or these words or their voice changes, the body language, etc, etc. You put all these into complex webs of patterns and you could start to tell these mosaics of the way that people interact with each other. I think that would be much more fascinating and complex than something like mathematics or, or a bell that's ringing. I find it fascinating and that's the thing that I look for constantly when I'm seeing people interacting or how they talk to each other, how they talk about themselves, or how they talk to me. But I just wonder why there's kind of a, a difference in category or threshold breach when it comes to mathematics and, and bell ringing versus the patterns that are in humans and the way that they function. I always, one scene that always sticks out to me is related to, what is that movie called with Russell Crowe and what's her gorgeous name who won an Oscar for that movie? A Beautiful Mind. Yeah, that one where he's talking about, he was plotting out the way that pigeons move and, and how how they were eating and that sort of thing. He was putting that up on a on a window, how trying to make a mathematical formula to govern the way that they were moving. And so I always, I wonder about one that would govern the way that humans interact and the way that they talk to each other and, and try to protect themselves in conversations and sell themselves and, and the millions of way that, ways that this happens every day in the way that people interact. And so it's just something that always stuck out to me, those pigeons wandering about him trying to make sense of it. He talks about, oh yes, so he gets into the genetics a little bit here, but he couches like crazy on the genetic end, but not like crazy on the sociological end. Obviously when it comes to sociological, it's something that we feel like we can change, we can do something about it, we can give them better care, and they'll change, you know, that kind of a thing. But genetics, it's like, that's unchangeable, that's just there, that's the only thing that we can do. Of course, as I described earlier, I, I'm virtually certain that when it comes to the genetics, it's just laying down ranges of responses to stimuli in millions of different contexts, and so you can figure out the particular combination of stimuli that would get them to the best, you know, the furthest part of the range that would be positive for society. But anyway, so he talks about uh, monozygotic twins and the study about them, and that there's a higher empathy correlation with monozygotic twins, which means that it's more likely that it's, it's genetic when it comes to empathy, and especially, oh, he, he brings a borderline. So, borderline personality disorder, you have a 70% risk for borderline personality disorder in monozygotic twins if one twin has it, the other one's likely going to have it to 70% degree. So, that means it's very likely to be mostly genetic. But again, it's a range, so it's only 70%, it's, and you have to, I mean, this is a complex area of determining who has borderline who doesn't, what borderline is, and all that, so you have to figure out all that stuff. But anyway, so it's like a 70% chance that if one monozygotic twin has it, the other one does, so that means it's very likely to be heavily genetic and based on genetics. He brings up, oh, low-hung ears and birth trauma, and how you're more likely to have low-hung ears if you experience birth trauma. I don't remember the details of that, but that's something that's, it's saying that there's an environmental impact on something more concretely physical that you can, you can measure, but I need the details on that to, to figure that one out. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, also, when it comes to natal bleeding and child violence, and again, you'd have to determine, okay, do the people who end up with low-hung ears, were the parents genetically more inclined to birth trauma? Is that something more li likely to happen? You don't, I don't remember the specific kind of trauma that he described 
and or if all the birth trauma is specifically related to a third party engaging in some, you know, like punching the babies. <laughs> or something. I don't know if doctors do that. I don't think that's standard practice, but I don't know the details of that. Uh, he brings up the warrior gene, the MAOA warrior gene, which is actually controversial. They think that it's it's more prevalent in people who engage in criminal behavior, especially violent criminal behavior. So if you don't have that gene, or it's not even that you don't have it versus have it. It's like if you have certain copies of it or a certain number of copies, if you have like five of them, then it happens in a certain way. It's it's really complicated. It's not just have it or don't have it. So don't, sorry for stating it in those simple terms. It's 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 like if you have two copies, then you're more violent, or you have two copies, you're less violent, or something like that. But he also talks about how natal bleeding is associated with, and again, this is a correlation, natal bleeding is associated with child violence. Violent children? Is that what he was saying? Gosh, I this stuff is so complex that you have to, you have one book that's like 150 pages or less than that, and now I'm trying to distill it into just talking about it in a, like, 15 minutes, so it's just like, oh, Oh my gosh, it's so much. Anyway, so natal be bleeding correlated with uh, violent children, apparently. And again, you have to control for the parent being prone to natal bleeding. But anyway. And, oh, he talks about how in other species you don't really see empathy in the same way that people do. And it makes sense if it's situated in the prefrontal cortex, something that's a, a more modern development on an evolutionary scale, that you wouldn't see empathy like this in, in apes. And he talked about how a mother can swim if the, she's swimming across things she'll have the baby on her on her front side instead of her backside and on the front side the baby will drown on the way over and the mother doesn't really have the ability to empathize with with the baby so that they she could see that the baby's going to be you know underwater and not be able to breathe but then i wondered okay i'm guessing that all of them don't do this right <laughs> Where does that come from? What what are the flickerings of the ability to be able to swim across with the baby on the back versus the front? You know, do they get to observe that it's just happenstance that if the baby crawls on the front, sorry, it dies. If it crawls on the back, then it doesn't. Or do some mothers say, no, idiot, get on the back of her swimming. I, I don't know. Uh, you also don't see pointing among apes. They don't point at things like, look, I have a brain and I can tell that you have a brain. So I'm pointing so that you'll see that this is what's happening. That seems, I mean, I'm sure it's uh, true, but just intuitively, and I'm, I'm sure this is stupid intuition, but it seems like that can't be right, right? I mean, they've got to point at things occasionally. Like, monkeys got to point. <laughs> I don't know. It just seems like they've got to do that. And when a, you see, I don't know if it's just in cartoons, but don't hunting dogs, they like do that thing where they point at something <laughs> with their noses? I don't know. I don't know anything about this, so who knows? Uh, it's probably true. I probably don't know what I'm talking about. He says in this sentence, annoying the hell out of me. He says, empathy is the most important thing in our world. And I just, I disagree wholeheartedly with that nonsense. I think it's, I'll get into that in my response, but I think that it's an incredibly reductive, superficial way to determine what's right and wrong. So I, I don't think that it's the most important thing in our world. I think it's an incredibly dangerous thing. Oh, and he goes into mental illness related to empathy. So this is an important question and I don't think he really has an answer and I don't think he claims to have an answer or anything like that, but it's, it's really complex. So there was a woman who killed her children to hurt her husband. And this is, I mean, this is way beyond the realm of things that we would accept are, say, are acceptable in any kind of modern society who say that, no, you don't get to do that. That's incredibly wrong. That's a horrible thing. She was found to not be mentally ill, you know, at trial because there was no description related to this in the DSM. And everybody, what is it? The diagnostic medicine something? Diagnostic something medicine? I, I don't, why don't I know what this stands for? Gee, 
Jeez. I know I just looked this up too, so I, I have no excuse. But anyway, the DSM does not have a category for somebody like this, you know, that says that she is mentally ill and therefore the regular kind of a trial doesn't make sense for her. The author says, Baron Cohen says, that anyone who can stab their own daughter, by, nef by definition, it has a lack of empathy and there should be a category for empathy disorders. And he kind of goes into this thing about people, you know, there's one that was a hacker and, and, and things like that. So, and saying that they are a different kind of category of mentally ill, I don't, it's like he uses the standard of normal versus abnormal behavior and there's just, from a legal perspective, if you start carving out these areas, then these things are applicable analogously to other areas. So if you say that the standard for determining whether somebody is mentally ill or not and should be determined one category versus another when it comes to legal standing, criminal legal standing, if you carve out this category that says that this person acted abnormally and therefore should be considered mentally ill, not criminal, then you would be able to analogize to other areas where people don't act normally. You know, why wouldn't a person just murdering somebody, period? Why isn't that considered abnormal enough to say that, no, you're mentally ill, you're not just a criminal, you know? So you have to be really careful about these kind of categories, and and where's the line on that? You can't have a standard that just says acting abnormally suggests somebody's mentally ill. And I know he's arguing for this kind of technical idea of lack of empathy, but still, you have to be really careful with this kind of an area, and judges understand this. You have to be really careful about the way that you formulate a standard, because that can be used as an analogy to any other kind of fact pattern you want in the universe. So, anyway, he brings up how it's tangled up with the free will debate when it comes to criminality and these kinds of issues. Uh, there's no such thing as free will. It doesn't exist. But I know what you're saying. <laughs> I, get what you're, I get what you're getting at. Oh, this is where he brings up the guy who hacked the Pentagon, and how that guy, you know, he was just doing it to see if he could do it because he was just heavily systematizing. He wasn't trying to do anything wrong. And the guy was terrified of prison and he, sh he the author says he shouldn't go to prison for this kind of a thing, you know. And there are obviously things on either side. He didn't hurt anybody, you know, but the Pentagon obviously has a, an extremely high interest in protecting and defending its internal integrity when it comes to security. So it might make sense to kind of push more on the other side, but I completely see the perspective here that this guy you know he wasn't violent he was likely just highly systematizing and wasn't didn't have an interest in actually causing any kind of a harm or anything like that so sending him to prison really doesn't make sense <laughs> you know sending him somewhere else where he i think he even brings up where he'd be useful you know working with the pentagon or something like that so i don't know i don't know but on the other side if he doesn't have the the judgment to be able to say you know what maybe i shouldn't hack into the pentagon <laughs> <laughs> then maybe he shouldn't be working with the Pentagon either. He talks about a reformed murderer in jail that was executed and how the murderer had changed all his behaviors. You know, he'd done all sorts of great things. He'd consistently done this for an extended period of time, but he was still killed in the United States. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I think execution is not an acceptable use of state power. There are a whole bunch of complex reasons for that, and not the least of which that it doesn't deter people who aren't sane enough to determine that they shouldn't be killing somebody. It's not as an effective deterrence. It, I mean, the studies I've seen have shown this. I might have to revisit this because now I'm a red pill. <laughs> 
<laughs> when it comes to the Liberal Party. So anything that has to do with their standard kind of positions on things and the standard arguments they use, I'm very suspicious of now. So I, I might have to revisit this, but definitely execution in general, I don't think is, is useful. It's also very expensive because they have to go through repeated appeals and very complex and very expensive appeals that take a lot of time because they're dealing with somebody's life. So if you say that there's no such thing as execution, we the state doesn't do that anymore, doesn't have an interest in it, then you don't have to go through those appeals and you don't have to worry about that and you don't have to worry about the cost of killing somebody incorrectly. I know at least one person, but I've read this in New Yorker, who knows if it's actually true. It had to do with a fire and new forensics came out that said that uh, the fire couldn't have happened the way that, you know, you know it could have been an accidental fire when pre the previous scholarship said that it couldn't have been an accidental fire. So anyway, but they're virtually certain that they executed the guy who was innocent. And I just don't think it's worth it. I, I don't think it's worth it to risk that to actually kill somebody or to have the state wield that kind of a power. I don't think it's worth it to whatever negligible effect it actually has on preventing murder. Like I said, it's not the most forward-looking, long-term thinking people who commit murder. So I don't think it's worth it. But anyway, and he talks about the concerns about super empathy and people don't care for themselves and, and that sort of a thing. But it's more kind of lip service to that idea. And he brings up these two men, one from Palestine, one from Israel, who both lost sons in bombing-related incidents between the, you know, warring factions, and who one just called the other at one point, and they started talking, and now they, they tour around trying to get people to stop. Stop the violence, and that was a beautiful story. It was, it was interesting. I don't say that in a normative sense. I say that in a, it impacted me, and I think it's it's a fascinating thing to look at. And so, Simon Baron Cohen talks about how there are better ways to resolve problems. Empathy is free. Empathy is not taught in schools or taught generally, and uh, empathy cannot oppress anyone. Yay, I'm selling empathy. I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Empathy is an incredibly crude, superficial method for determining what's right and wrong, and it's something that's abused constantly, not just by people like in relationships or people trying to get sympathy for themselves when it's unjustified or or just abused by the entertainment industry or especially YouTube or something like that. But I mean it's it's abused for things like fear-mongering. That's specifically the kind of thing that they use. They say that look at this person, you know, when it comes to an illegal alien that came into the United States and killed somebody. That actually happened. That's a thing that happened. But it's then used to fearmonger to say that, okay, well, all illegal aliens, let's paint them with the same kind of a brush. Any of them could be this person, when obviously it's a very small percentage who actually does this sort of a thing. Same thing when it comes to police shootings. I say, look at this horrible incident of, of this police officer who illegally shot an unarmed black person. Now let's paint the entirety of the police force with this brush of saying that they're all responsible and any of them could be that person. That's complete fear mongering as well. That's saying that, and that's using empathy. That's saying, look at this horrible thing that happened to this one person. Empathize, and now it could be you. So that has caused all sorts of problems. Hostility unjustifiably and unnecessarily. Obviously, the vast majority of police officers don't engage in that kind of thing, just like the vast majority of illegal aliens don't engage in, I mean, they engage in illegality. <laughs> don't engage in violent crime. <laughs> so, empathy is used, though, to support this, to support the idea, to support fear mongering. It's abused for this purpose, because 
because we don't have the real understanding to to be able to quantify you know a million people and say that okay well I know five people who did this horrible thing who were part of a group of a million people therefore the group of a million people is bad so it's it's bad I think we should be pushing against this idea that we need to be able to empathize with the other person I think we need to be looking at these are all the standards of behavior these are the things that we should and should not be doing how do we make this the most effective application of these rules that we possibly can and I know Sam Harris talked about it he talked about how if you are concerned like if you hear that a little girl falls down a well your your max concern you're like oh my gosh I'm I, I hope she's okay I'm really worried if you hear two did you're less concerned three up to ten you just don't care anymore <laughs> you know it's like ah whatever you know fix it or don't I, I've got stuff to do so it's a function of the circuit I know we talked about against empathy too by Paul Bloom which is a book that had its own issues but but I definitely lean more on his side of being suspicious of the ideas of empathy especially empathy is always subjective it's always okay here's how I feel here's how I think you feel even if I'm accurate about how I think you feel it's that subjective structure that it's it's not accessing something <laughs> accessing something out there in the universe that's true it's just saying that okay my subjective perspective that includes all of my biases you know internal biases and prejudices and lack of understanding and weaknesses limitations all those things are just packaged into one and either I'm empathizing with you and so I just undertake all of your biases and limitations or I'm pretending to empathize with you just saying that I'm feeling what you would feel or what I would feel in your place and I'm just keeping all of my biases and limitations and that's how I'm making my moral reasoning that's just bad that's that's a great concern it's just subjective and so if somebody's all sorts of wonky then they're gonna have terrible reasoning when it comes to this that's why we should have a standard that's outside of this subjective analysis that is more robust and dispassionate and objective than just I happen to feel this thing right now so therefore I'm gonna do it and like I said long this is my response to it uh, like I said long term it's it's always gonna come down to okay did you really control for determining whether it was genetic or environment you know did you is there really anything to be talked about here relative to fixing any of the people who are lacking of empathy or are we just kind of bouncing around with whatever amount of empathy we happen to have and we just have to deal with it again the genetics create all sorts of ranges of responses to stimuli so this is what we have to understand is how are your genetics going to make you respond to particular stimuli stimuli rather than it's just nature versus nurture and we're going to be able to nurture our way out of any kind of an issue you have to control for all that stuff control for the genetics to determine how much you can actually move the needle relative to external stimuli i just i don't think it's it's effectively discussed or understood or properly defined and i don't know if in the actual direct studies if they go into this more effectively they probably do to some degree but i really think we need a different method of talking about these things and that's going to come down to language that's going to come down to communication that's going to come down to dealing with the fact that people are idiots and people are self-interested and they modify and filter everything you try to say to them so there's really a, a mediating factor between truth claims and the repository of truth claims not only that but this medium of going through a book and a, a person who's studying this issue discussing it and giving special import to this or that or the conclusion they draw or the fact that they were interested in this topic in the first place and have to come to a real conclusion 
I mean, there are so many things going on, but anyway, it's a short read. I recommend reading it. I think I went through most of the important points, but I do think that reading, at least for the first time, the descriptions of the way people function when they have zero empathy or described as having zero empathy or zero negative, it's really good to get kind of a barometer of the way that people are going to function. And obviously people can see these traits in people they know and people they see on TV or, or themselves. They can kind of understand this and maybe that'll, that'll make them a little more understanding of these categories. So anyway, that's, that's the last coffee house. That was Sam Harris reading list. It was the science of evil, science of evil by Simon Baron Cohen. And I hope all is well. I, uh, like I said, I've got my reading list going at John Shade Reads, so you can follow what I'm reading right now. So what is likely to come up on the podcast. And I've got a book that's going to be coming out about literature and literary analysis. That's going to go into some amateur writers and what's right and wrong with how they write and the things that they, they put together. I really appreciate it. I hope all is well. I hope you have a good week and I'll see you on the next one. All right, bye. Thank you.